Hello, and welcome to the next installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. This episode, celebrating recent work by David Friedberg, is drawn from a panel brought together virtually on January 28, 2022, to discuss Friedberg's recently published book, Iconoclasm. David Friedberg is the Pierre Matisse Professor of the History of Art and Director of the Italian Academy for Advanced Studies in America at Columbia University. Friedberg was born and raised in South Africa and got his bachelor's degree in classics at Yale. While studying for his DPhil at Oxford, he switched from classics to art history, a result of studying with influential art historians like E.H. Gombrich at the Wardberg Institute. Now, he's best known for his work on psychological responses to art. He's particularly interested in iconoclasm and censorship, publishing works on the subject like Iconoclasts and Their Motives in 1984, and The Power of Images, Studies in the History and Theory of Response in 1989. His new book, Iconoclasm, which he wanted to call The Fate of Images, 12 Essays on Iconoclasm, was published in 2021. The book brings together some of David Friedberg's most significant work on iconoclasm and censorship, and adds new assessments of both contemporary iconoclasm around the world and the study of iconoclasm itself. Zainab Bahrani, one of the panelists at this event, who we'll hear from later, and a professor of ancient Near Eastern art and archaeology at Columbia, calls David Friedberg the foremost thinker on iconoclasm. With this book, David solidifies his place as the foremost thinker on the topic of iconoclasm. Here is David Friedberg talking about his aim when he started studying iconoclasm. Let's take a listen. It was to show that antipathy towards images, the will to destroy, was not a characteristic just of so-called aniconic cultures, but of Western cultures too, maybe even more so, not less. As I note in the book, when I first began writing about iconoclasm, no, no art historian at all, at least no Western art historian, was writing about iconoclasm. Of course, the Byzantinists were, and everyone from André Grabar and soon afterwards his son Oleg and many others were concerned with Muslim, Muslim attitudes. But the general feeling was that the West was iconophile and the Arabic-speaking lands were, if not iconoclast, iconophobe. One of my aims in everything I've done has been not just to argue against what were for so long regarded as primitive or barbaric attitudes in non-Western peoples, but to show that precisely what we in the West tend to regard as anti-iconic and irrational in people's responses to images was not to be found amongst the other, but at the heart of Western attitudes as well. And it was this misperception of the distinction between Christian and Islamic attitudes, between European and Oriental ones, between reason and rigor on the one hand and irrationality and luxuriant slackness on the other that caused me to write The Power of Images and to continue my researches into iconoclasm. In all of them, I wish to show how so-called superstitious and irrational behaviors could not just be assigned to other cultures, but were essential elements in responses to our own canonical masterpieces as well, to say nothing of our everyday images. So all this led me to become more and more aware of the issue, not so much of survival as of recurrence, recurrent behavior, recurrent patterns of behavior. I've often been assailed that my interest in 
recurrent patterns of behavior has led me to perhaps overlook subtle differences, maybe to those who are ignorant of context, particular context, they see recurrences where they're not actual recurrences, similarities where they're not actual similarities, and that the tendency, it has often been alleged in my case, has been to universalize responses. And that has led to the further complaint that I overrate the notion of immediate responses to what we see in images at the expense of contextual responses. I continue to use the word, the notion of precognitive, preconscious responses. I continue to talk about automatic responses, whereas the controversy now is that even automatic responses are contextualized, are dependent entirely on context. Andrea Pinotti, a panelist at the event and a full professor of aesthetics at the Department of Philosophy at the University of Milan, where he also got his PhD, asks a question about images in the digital age of the internet, virtual reality, and Photoshop. Here's Andrea Pinotti. This book, Iconoclasm, comes out in 2021, and I would like to underline chronological coincidence. The Power of Images came out in 1989. It was the dawn of the internet age, of the digital age. I have checked because I confess I, I scanned it, I have the PDF, and there is no occurrence of the term digital in the Power of Images. But it was somehow prophetic because uh, it kind of an anticipated the enormous power that images have shown during the, the digital age. Um, the internet age, late 80s, early 90s were the time of the advent of Photoshop, before uh, Photoshop became, to Photoshop, a verb in English language. And um, of the JPEG compression format, which allowed a huge amount of manipulation of distribution of consumption of digital images. Iconoclasm comes out in 2021 when Mark Zuckerberg has announced the transformation of Facebook into Metaverse and announced uh, that we will go soon virtual. There is a mention of the virtuality in this book, Iconoclasm. There are, there's a chapter mentioning virtuality. And reading this book, you understand that virtuality is not just the digital, although David uses it as a synonym of digital, and it is true that we all use it in the ordinary discourse, we, think, we, we speak of these meetings as virtual. But there is also a prehistory of virtuality, and precisely this book uh, demonstrates how virtual are the represented bodies of uh, the authorities of the power of the, of the kings, for example. But there is also more specific meaning of virtual nowadays. And uh, I have to tell you a story. During the fall term, I was a fellow at the Italian Academy. And with a group of fellows, we convinced David to come to a VR space, a VR experience center in Midtown Manhattan. And there, we could see David fighting as a boxer against an adversary fiercely. And he was very powerful in engaging in this fight. And he could see 
and we all could see on, on a screen, but it was inside this virtual environment. And as you perhaps know, uh, when you wear these head-mounted displays, you cannot do like in other so-called virtual but actually digital environments such as the one in which we are now i can turn my head and look at my books and they are not images but once you are inside a helmet a virtual helmet there's nothing but images there's a seamless continuum of images and david was there and he could perceive his own hands with the gloves of the boxer and trying to fight against the competitor so my question for david is this book at the dawn of the metaverse what happens with virtuality. Is this just a um, late phase of an ancient virtuality? Barry was mentioning before a kind of alternative to the platonic ontology of images as, as representations. Whereas in virtuality, we have to do with avatars, sometimes partial, like a, a hand, a forearm, like you, David, saw in that field, in battlefield. Sometimes entire bodies and you are embodied because avatar is a Hindu term for the incarnation of Vishnu. So what happens in this new field, which is at the same time an old field in which representation is substituted by, by a, an archaic but also very contemporary way of being present and not just represented in the image, which is another term, of course, of saying to say um, embodiment. Here's David Friedberg's response, a presentation of his theory of virtuality and representation. David connects this idea with an experience most of us, if not all of us, share as a product of living through the COVID-19 pandemic. With the shift of meetings, classes, and most, if not all, social gatherings to digital platforms, how does our engagement with images change? Fear, David says, is not only of the image itself, but of the potentiality of the image. Once again, here's David Friedberg. What we've learned from our use of the visual in the age of COVID is how much when we see digital images, this may not be what you call virtual images, but I think it's, there's, it phases into our responses to virtual images as well. How much we really want to convert these representations into actual presence. I mean, this is, this, this is in a way the return of the enlivenment of images. That virtual image out there, we want that virtual image out there to be present with us in our presence. And I actually think that was the same with the uh, virtual experience. I'll mention it in a minute. As I talk, I realize, of course, Barry will say, but what about those presences we don't want with us when they're given to us virtually. Um, but there, I would say, we slip into this inevitable enlivening of the image before us. I mean, that's, that's for me, as Barry rightly pointed out, it is really, for me, one of the fundamental aspects that I think has to do with our relationship with all images, including virtual ones. We turn now to panelist Zainab Bahrani, a professor of ancient Near Eastern art and archaeology in the Department of Art History and Archaeology at Columbia University. In the summer of 2004, Bahrani was the senior advisor to Iraq's Ministry of Culture, where she was tasked with conducting a survey of war damage at the archaeological site of Babylon. She instigated the state of Iraq's official request for the removal of the military base from the site. Here, 
After briefly discussing the recent revival of the removal of statues and monuments, Bahrani turns to the destruction of the Saddam Hussein statues in Baghdad in 2003. Here's Zainab Bahrani. Of my own early work on the assault and abduction of images in ancient Mesopotamia, Iran and Anatolia was very much inspired by the possibilities that David opened up for this kind of rethinking of the status of the image. There are so many examples of knocking down statues in the US and Europe now that some have begun speaking about a new age of iconoclasm or an iconoclasm as political activism rather than one based in theological concerns. In fact, political iconoclasm is the earliest type that we have recorded. In Egypt and in Babylonia and Assyria, iconoclasm was not aimed at images of the gods, but at images of the ruling elite. While the statues of the gods of one's enemies were treated with respect and carried on their thrones on the shoulders of the Assyrian army, images of rulers were frequently assaulted, mostly as valid substitutes for the person represented. The relationship between the image and uh, the represented was not considered to adhere to what we now describe as the arbitrary condition of the sign, but was linked in a consubstantial way. And though philosophies of representation and semiotics have changed since that time, the ancient examples, I think, perhaps point to an instinct of conflating the sign with its referent. David's new book continues to ask difficult questions about the power of images, about oppressive statues, about censorships and new forms of mass media dissemination. And through his astute discussion spurs us to think about all of these within a broader frame of response. I'd like to return briefly to the destruction of Saddam Hussein's statues in Baghdad in the 2003 war and occupation of Iraq, as it's a topic which David goes back to and reconsiders in his new book, this time pointing to the staging of such events. In Afghanistan, the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas was not a random act, as we know, but a pre-planned detonation, which was filmed and televised to the world in a type of self-documentation that would later be copied by ISIS. Likewise, the U.S. Marines choreographed the removal of the Saddam statue in Ferdos Square and made sure that it was televised. A New Yorker article later confirmed that the decision to take it down had less to do with this particular statue, and every to do with the fact that the hotel in which all the journalists stayed faced Ferdos Square. It was an excellent media opportunity. The immediate theater of iconoclasm as an interesting thing is an interesting thing in itself, as is the pre-planning of episodes of removal and destruction. Iraq was cluttered with so many public statues of Saddam, which felt like a constant reminder of the all-seeing surveillance state that was Iraq under the dictatorship. In 2004, when I was in Baghdad as senior advisor to the new Minister of Culture, U.S. military officials approached me several times about the fate of these public statues and colossal bronze heads that topped so many of his palaces. The statues and the heads were all removed by the U.S. and coalition forces. Many relocated to storage areas while others were melted down. Among the requests that came to my desk was for the melting of two heads of Saddam, colossal heads, 
and using the bronze for medals to award to the US and coalition forces. I turned down that request. But in some cases, the repurposing of the bronze statues took place without consultation. In one very interesting example, an equestrian statue of Saddam was melted down and the bronze was used to recast this statue of a US Marine mourning his fallen comrades while being comforted by a small Iraqi girl. The process of transformation of the body of the despot into that of the occupying force is a fascinating, if inadvertent, sign not of the heroic US veteran it aimed to represent, but of the violence that the people of Iraq have endured, first at the hands of the brutal dictator, and then at the hands of the brutal US war and occupation and its consequences. At the time, there was also some talk that perhaps coalition forces should remove the monument called the Nasb al-Hurriya in Baghdad, the Freedom Monument, as it's called, constructed to commemorate the 1958 revolution that overthrew the British-installed monarchy. It is the work of two leading Iraqi modernists, the architect Rafat al-Chadirchi and the artist Jawad Salim, who wanted to create a revolutionary monument that was both historically specific and timeless, in its revolutionary potential. Fortunately, the idea of tearing it down didn't materialize. In 2019, it became the center of the people's protests in Baghdad against the current government, corruption, revealing another side of the power of monuments, in this case, anchoring the protest movements of 2019 in their post-colonial past. The Freedom Monument is also interesting because it alluded to the overthrow of British claims on Iraq and the event of the toppling of the statues during the 1958 revolution. One of them was a statue of Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Stanley Maud, the conqueror of Baghdad in 1917. The pulling down of that statue was documented in a series of photographs by Kamil al-Chadirchi in 1958 when it occurred. Of course, at that time, this act of toppling the colonizer did not receive the same kind of enthusiastic interaction international endorsement that we were to see later, but in retrospect, these earlier topplings of imperial colonial statues can perhaps also be reconsidered. Here is David's response to both Zainab Bahrani and Andrea Pinotti, followed by his thoughts on iconoclasm now. With the recent removal of Confederate statues and statues celebrating things like colonialism and racism, do we really want the statues to go away, he asks. Or could preservation contribute to the continuation of resistance to what they represent? Here's David Friedberg. Her remarks that the earliest forms of iconoclasm were political, not theological, hmm, that stopped me sort of in my tracks. Um, let's say that she's right. Um, you know, I'm not going to yield quite yet, but let's say that she's right. But I think the comment that I would offer is that religion very swiftly co-opted the potential of images to be seen as alive. I mean, that's why I've always taken the view that I think Gadamer, that rather once popular German philosopher, Gadamer insisted that theology really is the um, 
model for all responses to images. In other words, that's where I got my notion that we really had to think of reactions to images as consisting in one way or another of attempting to enliven and make present the um, platonic ideal or make present the dead object. I would like to distinguish very clearly between the ruination of images and the wearing away of images, shall we say, by acts of positive devotion from antagonistic acts. Many uh, uh, acts of destruction are now accompanied by making them available to others in the form of new images. But I think what's been interesting in our time, the digital has done something quite paradoxical. Again, one of these contrasts. On the one hand, it's made it much easier to eliminate images. You can eliminate an image by the press of a button. But the other thing that's been enabled is that you can never get rid of an image anymore. The, the issue is that we can never get rid of images altogether anymore. It's gone. I mean, you know, because everything is will sooner or later have been recorded digitally, and we may not recover their original contexts. But the, I, the ultimate destruction of images, slightly differently from architecture, or differently from architecture, is no longer possible precisely because of the digital world in which we live. Iconoclasm now, um, do we really want the statues to go away? Preservation might actually contribute to the continuation of resistance to what things represent. I, I think that's something that we should really reflect on when we so easily in these times take down monuments. The response to say is we can make our museum of rejected monuments and give accounts of why the statue of Roosevelt should come down, why we should find a place for the general knee monuments. They could serve as didactic purposes. But what do we do with them? And do we need to worry so much is my question. Here, David shows an image of a statue in Cape Town, South Africa, of Jan van Riebeek, a Dutch colonial administrator whose image became influential during the apartheid era. It was Van Rebeek who was sent by the Dutch East India Company to colonize the Cape of Good Hope in 1652. His statue still stands on Adderley Street in the heart of Cape Town. He wears a plain-brimmed hat, a long jacket with overhanging shoulder straps, and knee-length breeches. His sword is sheathed at his left hip, and in his right hand, he carries a walking stick. I just want to go back to the statue of Jan van Rebeek, whom, uh, who was we used to call the discoverer of South Africa, by which, of course, we whites meant the first white man in South Africa in 1652. Um, I have to say that I, I was always skeptical. I mean, I don't want to sound more virtuous than thou, more holy than thou, but this seemed to me a pure invention, as of course it was. But here is the statue of the discoverer, by which we mean the first Christian, the first Dutch reform person in South Africa. He wasn't even the first white person in South Africa. But anyway, he's apartheid founder, as it were, of South Africa or for the apartheid building. And of course, statues like this have come under attack. Cecil Rhodes was pulled down. And just after I wrote the book, I actually handed in at the end of 2019. So a lot happened between the end of 2019 and the time Chicago brought the book out. 
But here is Jan van Riebeck. And all I want to say about this statue is when I was a boy, I never took the slightest notice of these statues. I didn't give a damn about these statues. I barely knew who they were. And when somebody pointed out to me that he was the discoverer of the land, I burst out with laughter because I could see that no chap who came across on his boat from Holland in the 17th century ever dressed like that. I mean, for me, this was a kind of Disney figure and I simply ignored it. And that reminded me of Michael Baxendall, when I was writing about the power of images, he sort of sniffed, uh, as you know, he was a great art historian, but he sniffed and he said, no, people don't take any, most people don't take any notice of art. Of course, that was the conflation of art and images, which we have now fortunately gotten slightly away from. But I still am concerned with the fact that, and when I wanted to raise the question of maybe it's not worth the effort maybe we should just ignore these goddamn things. Maybe they can fade into oblivion. Clearly at this point in time, we need to make these gestures, but how much more of a gesture are they? Are they really encouraging the subsistence in memory by being present or can we just eventually forget about them again? Clearly these statues must come down now and it's a lot of effort, a lot of expense and a waste of space in my view. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank David Friedberg and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was Celebrating Recent Work by David Friedberg. The title of his new book is Iconoclasm, published by the University of Chicago Press. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>